This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason and the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Tidy Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Ji Hung Padma, author of Field of Blessings, Ritual and Consciousness in the Work of Buddhist Healers. Ji Hung believes that we are hungry for a direct experience of the sacred in this culture. We try to fill the void with technology and its quick fix of images and information. This leaves us hungry for true connectivity. We don't need more information. We need more appreciation. Gratitude opens the heart and gives our life meaning. It becomes a form of spiritual experience that gives us strength. Field of Blessings explores how meaning-making can be approached by deep examination of the stories of our lives, which bridge the gap between the inner world and the outer world, giving shape to our experience. How can these narratives be spoken, written, or embodied? Ritual is the story brought to life and a powerful vehicle for spiritual transformation, for reconnecting people with an embodied wholeness. Ji Hung Padma shows that Chode, Medicine Buddha practices, and other Tibetan rituals are used by healers to evoke sacred energies, radical empathy, and to contact deep archetypal realms of the psyche. Jihang Padma is currently a CPE chaplain resident at the University of San Francisco Medical Center and combines an academic and professional career with her role as a Zen teacher. Jihang has done intensive Zen training and teaching in Asia and North America for 20 years, 15 of these as an ordained nun. She has completed several 90-day intensive retreats in Korea and North America. She also teaches Zen workshops annually at Omega Institute and Esalon Institute. While her practice has been situated within the Korean Zen tradition, she has had the benefit of studying with teachers across a wide spectrum of Buddhist lineages. Ji Hung has also served as Director of Spirituality and Education Programs at Wellesley College and Director and Abbot of Cambridge Zen Center, one of the largest Zen centers in the country. Additionally, she has served as a meditation teacher at Wellesley College, Harvard University, and Boston University. She is gifted at finding an entry point into practice for people who are just beginning their journey. She is also the author of Living the Season, Zen Practice for Transformative Times. Jihang Padma, welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. It's a joy and an honor to be with you again. Well, thank you so much. And uh, we are looking forward to this conversation very much. But before we get started on our discussion of your new book, Field of Blessings, Ritual and Consciousness in the Work of Buddhist Healers, we'd like to just check in with you since you have been on the show at least twice before. Um, I think the last time was probably like three years ago, um, or three and a half years ago, I believe. And um, what's been, besides writing a book, and getting it published, what have you been up to to bring our listeners who've heard your previous shows up to date? Well, I spent some time in San Diego directing a program of comparative religion and philosophy, mm. which was a good workout, um, giving students a chance to connect with these reservoirs 
of wisdom um, that lead us uh, to develop our own ethics, you know, our own purpose and meaning. You know, there's a lot that we can draw on. And students would have the opportunity really to find uh, what really matters to them and to develop that into a thesis or a dissertation, which I then directed uh, with them. Cool. And it, um, there was much that I really loved about that, but with everything going on in the world right now, I felt it was important to get my hands on into the work. And so recently, uh, this year, I have been serving as a chaplain resident at UCSF Medical Center. Ah, is that the uh, new campus or the older campus up on the hill? It's the older campus up on the hill. Got it. I've spent a lot of time there with uh, people being treated there mm-hmm. myself, so I so so I know it quite well. Um, so, but just to uh, finish off. Um, the time in San Diego. I'm just wondering, were these mostly undergraduates you were these working were, with? These were um, almost all graduate students, masters uh, and doctoral students. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. That's not, that sounds like fun. Um, yeah. The uh, um, having having been through those sorts of programs myself, not the one, not the sort that you um, were uh, teaching, but um, I I know that um, especially. Masters and, and PhD students can be more committed than undergraduate students to putting energy in. How did how did that uh, work out for you and them? I did I did actually find that to be true <clears throat> that our masters and doctoral students were almost always second career people who mm. had already established themselves in the world doing um, amazing things. Uh, working for the UN, you know, working as psychiatrist or um, therapist and, and so forth. But then it, it comes to a point where um, we realize, yeah, it's like life is short. And it, is this is this path that I'm on? You know, is this expressing my potential? Is this is this um, <clears throat> the answer, you know, to the to the innermost question you know, that I carry? And that's when people often go on a, a second round of seeking and the the masters and doctoral programs really offer a beautiful vehicle for that. Got it. Well, thank you. Anything else you wanted to tell us about that, that whole um, period or uh, anything else come up? Well, I think one of the things is that uh, California Institute for Human Science, where I was working, is a, a, a kind of an equivalent of California um, Institute for Integral Studies here in San Francisco, mm-hmm. um, that it gave people a chance to um, look at things through a holistic lens and specifically to explore uh, connections between um, consciousness and the sciences or consciousness and psychology, uh, looking at ways in which um, Energy uh, medicine, you know, the subtle energy work that people do uh, can uh, be explored uh, in, in a way that has a lot of academic rigor, um, but is also cutting edge in terms of what we think about for um, psychology or the healing arts or um, integral uh, studies. 
So I'm really proud of, of the paradigms that we were able to explore there. I think that the world would be better off if there were more opportunities to do that work. I got it. Thank you. I mean, I'm familiar with CIIS in San Francisco. I, I guess we should mention, because you uh, mentioned it parenthetically, that uh, you're speaking to us on Zoom from San Francisco right now. Yes. And, and um but I didn't know about the the, the uh, institution in San Diego that you were referring to. So that's exciting to know that uh, this sort of exploration is happening beyond the Bay Area. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's a, in my book, actually, I mentioned Beverly Rubik's biofield hypothesis, which is um, one of the understandings of how things like acupuncture work. Her, her basic thesis is that um, the human body you know, has a kind of energetic blueprint of its own wholeness. And what modalities like hands-on healing or acupuncture do is they um, jog that part of the body's memory, so to speak. You know, they um, give that um, biofield a chance to restore its own homeostatic balance. So Beverly Rubick was one of the faculty I had a pleasure to work with over at California um, Institute for Human Science. That That's in Berkeley, right? Um, California Institute for Human Science is in San Diego. Oh, no, I'm, I'm sorry, but uh, Beverly Rubick, I, I, I thought she was based in the Bay Area now. Yes, we have many teachers who are teaching remotely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I see. Well, thank you. Thank you for uh, uh, discussing that because it's a new a resource new to me um, that I didn't know, yeah. uh, know about. And I'm sure listeners will be interested, especially down in Southern California. Yeah. But but um, uh, but let's get started with um, uh, the discussion of Field of Blessings, your new book. And um, I'm going to invite you in. Uh, in terms of a way to do get the discussion rolling, I'm going to invite you to sort of expand on for our listeners the short section at the end of the book where you discuss kind of how you got into the research that um, you write about in the book mm -hmm. and and how how it I mean you can go beyond if you if you like uh, uh, we uh, previous listeners or listeners to your previous uh, uh, programs on the mystical positivist will know that you have a background in uh, Korean Chogye Zen Buddhism. Um, but why don't you uh, sort of discuss what got the ball rolling for this book in your life? Well, yes. Uh, I've been training as a, as a Zen teacher for over 25 years, 14 of those as a monk. And I sat many intensive retreats in both Korea and the United States. And those retreats are, were very rigorous. Ten hours of sitting meditation per day um, will show you uh, where there is work that needs to be done. So very often within those retreats, I would have something come up physically. Um, sinus mm -hmm. infection, back spasms, you know, you name it. And I really depended on the work of these uh, traditional healers in order to um, complete the retreats and to be able to continue my sitting practice. So when I um, began my graduate studies, I had this insight come to me that the way to give back was to uh, dedicate my research 
uh, to traditional healing practice and to uncovering um, the, the, the deep meaning of these practices and the way that they can be lifted up in our lives. So, um, you know, within that work, that, that um, body of research, you know, I was training in psychology, but often psychology now is, is coming back to an understanding that talk therapy alone is not sufficient. In order for the learning to reach the, um, the deeper levels of knowing, what we could say that 90% of consciousness that is beneath the surface, we need to um, work with the limbic system. Mm-hmm. So um, the limbic system carries the um, knowing that is tacit. You know, we know something, but we can't quite say it. Or we have an emotion, but we don't exactly know where it's coming from. Mm-hmm. So those whole first two years of life, um, the prefrontal cortex isn't really online yet. You know, all of our memories from those first two years of life are really stored within the limbic system. So um, you know, when a child sees a dog and gets startled, that might be a limbic system memory that they had some earlier experience uh, with the dog that they don't remember. But the limbic system is alerting them through a kind of a stress response. I, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. And, and so <clears throat> actually, the, all the patterning for our relationships both our intimate relationships and um, our our common everyday relationships, all of that uh, relationship patterning is stored within the limbic system. You know, so that's why sometimes relationships are confusing because we are drawing on these cues that even we aren't completely familiar with. But these kind of somatic practices offer a way to tap into that a deeper knowing and do some rebooting of the, the system, you know, so that we can be connected to others in the way that is restorative and um, nourishing for us. Got it. I, I, uh, um, I don't know how many years ago it was, maybe seven or eight years ago. I was in a, uh, uh, a, a, workshop, I guess you would call it uh, something about um, training consciousness. And I suddenly had uh, access to a memory that I that I thought of many times, I I can I can place it in time, um, for a variety of reasons that that my we we moved to a house when I was just two years just less than a month after two years old. And I and there were lilacs blossoming which um, we have lilacs blossoming today on, on Easter, April 4th in our yard here in California. But back in Illinois, when I was a kid, they would blossom in mid-May. And, and that was part of, the, part of the, uh, the, this powerful memory. But what I didn't realize until I was in this um, workshop um, was the connections to a set of propensities that um, were, if you will, generated by other aspects of, of the incident um, around this memory of the fragrance of lilacs um, powerfully in, in my uh, awareness. And, and it was, you know, I, 
there was a there was a twenty four hour period through the night after this this realization when all the consequences the attendant consequences of this decision of mine to um, frame my relationship with other people from a certain position um, was uh, just scrolling emerging in my in my mind so so i can I can definitely resonate with with the uh, intellectual discussion that you just had about the limbic system and uh, and how these things can uh, shape our lives and our relationships, etc. Not just relationships with people, but relationships with all kinds of stuff. That's absolutely right. And in fact, the sense of smell is one of those very strong connections uh, to the limbic system memory. And in, in fact, some of those uh, connections are um, happening across generations. What do you mean by that? Well, there's research that um, there was a, a bunch of mice that were exposed to the smell of cherry blossoms when they underwent a kind of trauma. Mm-hmm. So they took mice... Uh, Two generations later, they had not experienced uh, the, the the fragrance of cherry blossoms uh, with any kind of trauma. You know, these were unconditioned, mm-hmm. seemingly. Mm-hmm. And yet, when they were exposed to this very innocuous fragrance, they went through a kind of PTSD response. Interesting. Oh, interesting. I think that uh, that's pro- that's uh, this new field of epigenetics, right? Where, that's right. That's where, true. Where people, are, the researchers are just starting, and I'd say it's just at its infancy, just starting to discover that there's data or information that's carried on non-genetically in the transmission from generation right, But of to course, epi- epigenetics means around genetics. Yeah. So there's so there's right. ways in which this information is yeah, transmitted. Yeah, it's a fascinating uh, arena because it's so resonant with many of the intuitions that come out of spiritual traditions. Exactly. And and that's why yeah. a, a spiritual traditions have, you know, a, a lot of that great ritual that is engaging all the senses. Yeah. So, so that's, this is one of the interesting things to me about your book, <clears throat> because we're, we're starting the conversation using a language that comes out of the metaphors of the, the Western scientific uh, neuropsychological uh, world. And, Yet the book is about um, Buddhist healing. And so I, I think, I, you know, I see in the book, and this is what I, I found fascinating, is it, it, it's really an attempt to bring these worlds together in a way and uh, allow for a conversation there. And I want to set the stage a little bit and get into a little detail about both of these worldviews, and, and then we can talk about the conversation. But, but uh, as we start down that path one of the questions that came up for me and you address it briefly in the beginning but i I think it's worthwhile to understand here is in field of blessings part of the methodology used is to have informants who are healers and senior practitioners in these traditions but you chose to focus on uh, uh, healers that were largely but not exclusively out of the tibetan healing tradition yeah. So I'm interested, particularly since uh, your background and your inspiration for this came out of uh, retreats in the Zen context, what, why that decision? And, and uh... 
Well, I, I, as a um, researcher, you know, I, I followed um, the, the connections that were the most dense with information. And uh, the Tibetan diaspora has done a beautiful work in preserving its traditions, uh, uh, more so than, um, for instance, in Thailand. In Thailand, there is also a very deep connection between traditional medicine and um, the Thai Buddhism. But due to um, the missionaries who came through and also um, the ingress of uh, Western medicine and, and the way that that interacted with the traditional practices, you know, Thai massage and, and so forth are largely now taught without um, knowledge of those historical connections. Whereas in Tibet, um, they've done a, um, a beautiful work in being able to engage I think the depth of their lineage in in the in, in a Buddhist context that still translates uh, almost a hundred percent into what's considered uh, Tibetan medicine. So yep. the um, you know the field was ready. Got it. Uh, so just to follow up on that a, l- a little bit, I'm wondering because we've been, you you just used the word lineages and and. Um, We've been having conversations on the mystical positivists lately, um, discussing uh, lineages and and more particularly recovering lineages that may have been uh, substantially, but perhaps not entirely lost. Yes. And I, and I'm wondering if it, you don't, uh, um, insofar as I recall, really discuss this point in the book, but I'm wondering, since you brought it up now um, in response to Stuart's question, I'm wondering whether um, you see in Thailand, for example, which mm-hmm. I've never been there, right? and I have no no familiarity with Thai massage and and the reported historical connections that are, that you're pointing to. But I'm wondering if 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 you see that as Something that in future may become a uh, an avenue for um, expanding or recovering healing practices from the Buddhist tradition indigenous to that area. Well, I, I hold out a lot of hope in that regard uh, because of the research that's been happening um, within the last couple of years in the um, Gandharan uh, region. So back in the early times, you know, the Silk Road was a connection between um, India and um, Thailand and um, the Middle East and, you know, extending out into Greece and so forth. So that Mm -hmm. um, it's documented now that that these great uh, Greek um, wisdom carriers like Pythagoras uh, traveled to India. You know, India actually already had discovered what is now known as the Pythagorean theorem. So some people um, speculate that Pythagoras might have brought his theorem back from India, you know, rather than uh, simply uh, having discovered it on his own. Hmm. Uh, We know that that Silk Road 
was a vehicle through which um, a lot of sacred practices were being carried by the merchants. You know, there were there were spiritual practices for protection, or there were ways in which this wisdom um, was traveling that that highway. You know, it was a valuable commodity. There are Greek coins that were found in the stupa uh, of uh, Prajna Paramita in India, in Himkal Pradesh. Mm-hmm. You know, so at the same time in which Buddhism was evolving this teaching of non-dual wisdom, that prajna, of the, which means non-dual wisdom, that same sound of the prajna is found in the uh, Greek word uh, gnosis. You know, they share the same linguistic root. Mm-hmm. And at the time that these um, theories were being evolved, they were these um, cultures were in dialogue with each other. Now we know in Christianity, Gnosis was ultimately considered heresy. But within Buddhism, you know, emptiness is actually a key to understanding everything. So in in the same way, we know that um, some of these healing practices um, were preserved and that they're being found in um, ancient scrolls in the, uh, Afghanistan, you know, mm. that were uh, buried uh, within caves, you know, in, in jars. Mm-hmm. And due to the advances in science, um, we're, we've been able to um, excavate those and actually restore uh, some of the knowledge so that it becomes evident um, that the, uh, these practices were influencing each other even then. And it, we're also uncovering um, more information about uh, a Buddhist ritual in its origins in this way. Well, I do know that we, I mean, we've had a guest on the show previously who uh, pointed to the importance to um, the development, introduction and development of Buddhism into China through that, through that route. Yeah. So, um, so that makes sense. But Stuart, I think you had a question. Yeah, uh, well, just one of the things that struck me about the Tibetan uh, context also was that Tibet was some, largely a coming together of both an indigenous uh, bone tradition, which was more shamanistic in character, a Buddhist uh, tradition, also a tantric tradition, which is somewhat different from Buddhism and Hinduism in general, and Hinduism as well. And so the corpus of Tibetan healing in itself is uh, uh, this combination of a lot of different diverse elements from that time. That is very true. It is. Um, And historically, that happened because as um, Buddhism began to encounter adversity in India um, from uh, the Mongols and... um, yeah, the other people who were um, changing the political landscape of India. And Buddha, the, the um, great scholars moved directly from India into Tibet. Mm. So in, uh, um, a lot of that late Indian Buddhism um, got translated directly into uh, Tibetan Buddhism. That's interesting. And so it's not just a story of Buddhism being crushed by the uh, moguls in the, uh, but that pressure caused the uh, that Buddhist thought to really go to Tibet where, where there was still a, uh, uh, a 
a container or a space for it to be uh, uh, deepened. Yes, and that's why the Tibetan um, canon is is so valuable, you know, because it really does carry that. It has a very strong um, Indian Buddhism emphasis, but also, um, of course, has the the Indian tantric practices. And as it uh, moved into Tibet, uh, made contact with the indigenous practices uh, in a way that was very powerful. So, so, um, so just to follow up on Stuart's question along this line, um, um, I think you're you're wanting to say that that um, in say Korea, where you, where you studied, um, some of the understanding of and or rituals and practices themselves were lost um, historically. Um, or did they never translate all the way to Korea? I guess I guess that's that, that's a question. I don't know if there's information about that, but uh, but I'm curious. Uh, actually, I think that there is probably some good body of work um, that simply hasn't been translated yet into English, hmm. and I that it is probably um, that from the, from the Korean. Sorry, from the Korean. You're saying. Right, that 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 these that I think that there probably are some good materials there that just simply haven't been explored and um, haven't been translated into English. So, so you know, as we uh, talk about the the Buddhist context, um, one of the things I'd like to get into is what that means practically. And I have some specific uh, elements that you bring up in the book that are what I'd call major major themes to understand um, Buddhist uh, healing and, and, and uh, the worldview of Buddhist healing. Probably the most important that seems to be a thread that weaves everywhere through your book is the idea of dependent origination or uh, Paticca Samapada, uh, yeah. I guess is uh, the Pali. And could you talk about how you see that and what that means, first of all, unpack that for listeners who may not be so familiar, but what does that tell us about the perspective on healing that comes out of the Buddhist tradition? That's a, a very important piece. Um, you know, for our, our Western listeners, I could compare it. Um, if you've seen the movie, The Big Lebowski, it's like the rug that ties the room <laughs> together. <laughs> Right? Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, this room really ties the the room together, does it not? So, within this um, Buddhist framework, we understand that everything is deeply connected. You know, because of this, that comes to be. You know, when this arises, that arises. When this ceases to exist, that ceases. You know, so there is no separate thing. And and some of my researchers, uh, like Eduardo Duran, who is um, Vipassana practitioner and also um, a Native American psychologist. He pointed out that in these ancient languages like Pali and also within many Native American languages, uh, they're verb-based rather than noun-based. So there is no solid thing originally. Um, There is a coming into being. And in that way, in Buddhism, we say, for instance, there's no enlightened person there's only enlightened activity. 
you know, so we ourselves are continually in process. There's no solid thing that to call the self. And also, uh, the good news about that is we're always changing. And that we, um, as we work on ourselves, that ripples out to everyone that we're in contact with. And everything that we take in through our rupa skanda, you know, through our, our senses and the field of consciousness, all of that is part of us. And, and, so, and the, so that good news is that we don't have to feel stuck if we experience, um, you know, pain or trauma. Uh, Eduardo Duran, um, when he works with his patients who are Native American, instead of telling them you have major depressive disorder, he might say to them, you know, the spirit of depression is visiting, right? It has a, a process feeling rather than a static feeling. And that gives people, you know, the sense that, yes, you know, this is an experience, you know, that's moving through, but it's also a visitor um, that might depart, you know, because there is no uh, solid thing. And once we realize that, then um, there's greater opportunities for healing um, through our connection to the natural world and through the connections that we have with each other. You know, primarily from a Buddhist perspective, um, illness, the, the original illness, comes from um, the mistaken concept that there is a separate individual isolated self that we have to protect, you know, from change as if we could. Or um, a, a self that, you know, has these experiences that we take as permanent when actually nothing is permanent. So when it's the it's like a river. And if there's a whirlpool in the river that um, isn't able to flow with the river, th then the, that would create a, um, an experience, uh, you know, a, a, a trying to protect something that ultimately can't be protected. You know, but if there's nothing to protect, you know, if we're able to work with things as they are, and we're able to see everything within us as workable and everything around us as workable, you know, then we can uh, freely engage in the flow, you know, in the process. And that, that capacity for change and growth uh, brings about healing. I'm reminded of our Caillou practice that, that we do, Stuart and I do, of, um, that our teacher developed called the Time Lord exercise. And basically it's, it's a um, it's a reframing in language of instead of saying I'm depressed, I have been depressed, mm. and um, and I hadn't thought of it before in, in these terms until listening to you just now. But I realize that that's actually a, a verbalization and recognition of process. Uh, in, I mean, uh, 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 our teacher Robert used to say it frees up the future. Which is true, yeah. But 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 also, it's it's a recognition at the at this fundamental level that that everything is continuing to change anyway. And, yes, and everything. that's true for me too. <laughs> <laughs> right, everything is changing, but sometimes we think that we you know we don't we're the only thing that doesn't change, and right. that right. attitude perpetuates suffering. And to whatever degree that we don't like that. Um, 
you know, we will we'll kind of project that onto others and see, oh, this, this person is the cause of my anxiety. This is the person who is preventing my happiness. Or I'm not comfortable with this part of myself, so I project it onto them. You know, they're the issue. You know, they're the stranger. You know, that's, that's um, that kind of threat response, yeah. which we see in our collective, actually, as we move through the kind of... Uh, um, a time of great change that within this uh, there's a lot of projection of our own shadow upon the other and the remedy for that you know certainly is being able to own our own um, experience and to be able to meet uh, what's going on within us uh, without holding back that's where I really feel that the work is valuable now is it provides a gateway um, to our healing from the um, experience of pandemic trauma, or for some people, the twin pandemics of um, the virus and the the racism that's been uh, coming up so strongly. It's, we have um, these experiences, and in some way, they're stored within our body in a way that's hard to have conscious access of, and so therefore they control to some degree, our emotions or our responses. But at the same time, if we're able to make contact with the body, with the limbic system, we also have the tools we need uh, to heal ourselves and others. So the notion of dependent origination also shifts the emphasis on the relationship of the healer and the uh, uh, person receiving the healing, right? Because yes. in one sense, in Western medicine, there tends to be this idea of causes and conditions, which would certainly be harmonious with the uh, dependent origination idea. However, there seems to be an abstracting of the physician out of the uh, out of the causality of the healing process. And so I'm interested yes. in how you see that. Right. So that would be. Um... A little bit of an error from a Buddhist perspective. There, there can't be any independent, objective I. You know, to to um, to reify that, um, to assume you know that the knower is separate from the known, would be a mistake. That it, within Buddhist healing, it's understood that as the healer works on another person, they're also working on themselves. And, and whatever they're, they're able to embody within themselves is the medicine through which they're going to be able to help others. You, you, so that the, the knowledge of healing and the embodiment of healing are ultimately not separate. That's, and I think within uh, Western medicine, there's be, beginning to be, in some areas, a greater understanding of the self as instrument. Um, the field of... Uh, narrative medicine is is part of that. Um, it, it has been customarily the case that um, you know, people have assumed, for instance, that Western medicine is it's completely rational and it's not affected by um, stories or or narrative. And what we call ritual is what's practiced by people who are not um, completely rational. 
um, mostly people in, in third world countries. So that was the old uh, anthropology uh, dichotomy. However, narrative medicine uh, pr uh, practiced by people like Edith Mattingly has seen that there are rituals in the Western medical world. Um, certainly, you know, taking the vitals is a ritual, you know, taking the uh, history is a ritual. But the question is, are these rituals that are meaningful, uh, that catalyze healing, or are they rituals um, that uh, disconnect? You know, is it effective ritual or is it, it not effective ritual? And so when uh, doctors and other um, healthcare practitioners are able to access their own sense of meaning and connect with patients in a way that um, brings forth their resources, then physical healing is catalyzed as well as um, spiritual or emotional healing. You know, there's something effective about that. You know, so we can't really separate the way that we do the medicine um, from the effect of the medicine itself. It, it's certainly the case that uh, research in uh, uh, outcomes for in what, even in the Western context repeatedly show that the relationship of the patient and the doctor as a positive thing is correlated highly with positive outcomes. Yes. I'm, I'm wondering if uh, if languaging here is important, too, because, <clears throat> you know, Stuart was using doctor and patient in the book. You use uh, healer and client and uh, which to me sounds at least partly from psychology, certainly the client word. And I'm wondering if you see how we name ourselves, getting back to the discussion of process yeah. a moment ago, um, how that can affect um this relationship between healer and, as Stuart put it, uh, the person being healed or receiving healing? Well, yes, I think that the, um, the client, you know, the person who is in need of healing needs to be empowered um, to do their own work. You know, to, they need to be engaged as um, a co-facilitator of the healing. Mm -hmm. And... Um, not, they're not just an object uh, being acted upon, you know, but they are uh, intimately involved in, in the process and, and really a partner in the process. Um, so th these traditional uh, practices uh, really lift that up, that, that uh, Deva Tara Holman or uh, Lama Jinpa and others really said that from the beginning, as they enter the room, as they make contact with um, the client, they are seeing the, the potential within that client. They are creating a relationship with that client that is going to teach the client how to be in relationship with themselves. And then out of that, hopefully all of their relationships are going to be healing relationships. I'm, I'm struck by your use of the word partner and wonder if that isn't even better than client. Yes. Like a and healing, healing partner. Yes, right. healing partner. <clears throat> Thank you. So, so one of the other dimensions that struck me as a distinction between the healing modality of the Buddhist tradition and the Western healing modality that we are uh, uh, we've all been raised in is the domains of applicability, and this is where the notion of the the Buddhist three worlds comes in. And I found this interesting partly because you're 
descriptions of uh, the three worlds, Dharmakaya, Nirmanakaya, and the Sambhogakaya made, actually made sense. Uh, whereas many times I see those terms in a greater degree of abstraction. But it seems like if I were to characterize what you say in the book, the you know, there's a healing of spirit, which is the realm of Dharmakaya. Yeah. There's there's a healing of body, which is I think what the Western world is more familiar with, which is the Nirmanakaya. But then there's this other piece, the Sambhogakaya, which is the uh, reconciling of the the spirit and the body, and that's the realm of the subtle energy body. And uh, all of those are important in the Tibetan tradition and in the Buddhist tradition in general. But in Western medicine, there's only a focus on the, the Nirmanakaya. So I just wondered if you could elaborate on that that picture that you draw of the three worlds and and how that's so vital for the Buddhist healing tradition. Yeah, um, let me add with that that um, not every um, Tibetan healer uh, or teacher uh, that I corresponded with would have equated uh, these three uh, places of um, the mind, uh, the body, and uh, the place between with um, the three uh, uh, kayas, the three bodies. Um, some actually said completely yes, and some said, well, it's, it's parallel, but maybe, maybe no. You know, but from a Zen perspective, actually, um, the connection uh, between the Anurmanakaya, uh, Sambhogakaya, and the Dharmakaya, and um, you know, these three experiences that we all have is, is a little bit more straightforward. So um, within that, you know, we experience this, you know, on uh, uh, one level that's easy to understand that even though we might be physically ill, you know, we can be uh, spiritually healed. Uh, so that the, the healing and the curing are sometimes different. And I work with uh, patients who are at the end of life. And to whatever degree that I, as a chaplain, am able to uh, lift them into um, this place, you know, where we're able to access th that sense of um, wholeness, you know, a recognition that death is, is not at, at all necessarily a defeat, you know, but really the drop of water returning to the great ocean. Yeah, that's, a, that's a healing. It doesn't, it's not a curing. And at the same time, there are times when we might uh, heal our physical body. You know, perhaps we have um, an accident, you know, or a ski injury. And we um, are able to repair the body, you know, but there's something within the psyche that is still a little bit jarred. And that might show up as some kind of somatic response. Um, you know, very often... Uh, People might have a difficulty sleeping or um, there, there might be um, a sense of disconnect. And uh, we know that as the trauma response, you know, so ultimately the working with that um, Sambhogakaya, you know, the place in between, you know, helps to facilitate and renew that body uh, mind connection. And so we can work that space through um, subtle energy, uh, through these kind of uh, energy psychology that use uh, tapping techniques 
uh, to uh, resource the deep knowing of the body. Uh, Qigong is another powerful modality for that. Uh, working with the breath, uh, because the breath uh, connects our uh, kind of conscious system with uh, the deeper unconscious. Those are some of the pathways uh, through which um, the Sambhogakaya can be easily accessed. And there's also many um, experiences within the spiritual tr traditions of people having had healing dreams. And in one um, uh, great study uh, that I looked at, there's a nun who is going through the, this practice connected with um, um, healing. And within the, the depths of that practice, she actually develops leprosy. You know, but then through a, a kind of dreamlike experience, um, she's able to uh, wake up and find the leprosy healed. You know, so that's a that's a story within Tibetan Buddhism of the way in which um, what I would call Sambhogakaya is an instrument of healing. It's a, you, I read that story in the book, and it's one of the elements of it that I thought was very powerful and spoke to me was um, the acceptance that mm. uh, integral to her experience was uh, she came to see her leprosy as a blessing or as a, a teaching and accepted it or completely embraced it as the, the thing that was happening now. And then, and with that then came the dream in which she woke up and she was completely healed. Yes. And part of, part of the reason that spoke to me, I've, I've had experiences where I've had very traumatic uh, surgical interventions um, that in one case uh, resulted in me having to <clears throat> have an ileostomy bag for four months, you know, because my mm -hmm. intestines were literally disconnected while I was uh, healing through the, because of a, a trauma of a twisted intestine. And it was really only when I could be completely, you know, sort of relate to having a bag, you know, hanging out of my abdomen and, and that, to say this has to be okay, even if this is the rest of my life. It's only at that point that that point marks a, a turning point uh, where then something else can start to happen, a resolution can happen. And that got called up for me by that story because that seems to be an important aspect of the healing process that you describe in the Buddhist context that I, uh, we tend not to see in the the western healing because western healing is so focused at least traditional western healing is focused on fixing yes and and sort of separating ourselves from the symptoms and and i feel that in western medicine also um it, there's a there's a common uh move uh, to reach for uh you know, the quickest resolution of anxiety possible. You know, they're very often, you know, psychiatric medicines are utilized when people are having, um, you know, that deep discomfort. And, you know, of course, there, there may be times in which those are necessary. Um, but to whatever degree uh, people can make contact and come to terms with what's going on, I think a deeper transformation and a deeper healing is possible. Okay. Thank you. 
So um, the thing about the Sambhogakaya uh, uh, body of the Buddha um, that's, that struck me when I was reading it is uh, uh, Stuart, and I think you spoke of um, the resolution of tension between the other two uh, body, the, the mind and the body, uh, to yeah. simplify it. And 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 then describing that Sambhogakaya as the subtle body, and and I'm wondering if you can uh, discuss that just a little bit more. What what you mean by the subtle body? Because the um, uh, in the uh, Gurdjieff tradition that that, uh, that Stuart and I have familiarity with, um, there is understood to be a um, a creation of a subtle body, an intentional creation of a subtle body, and I'm wondering if that if that has any resonance with the Buddhist healing uh, practices that you're um, outlining in the book. Well, yes, it does on two levels. So, first of all, for the people, um, the the uh, Tibetan practitioners with whom I spoke, uh, for whom the the um, they would say that the Sambhogakaya is not commonly experienced. They would say the Sambhogakaya is only experienced, you know, these uh, three bodies are only experienced by the people who are highly realized, you know, who have done the work to um, uh, create a subtle body. You okay, know. got and, it. But uh, on the other hand, um, there are many ways in which the... Um, and, and this was confirmed by some practitioners uh, that we all have um, access, you know, to these these three bodies of Buddha, you know, or the you know the three bodies within us. And so the Sambhogakaya is analogous to the nervous system, but it's not identical to the nervous system. So yeah. when um, practitioners are working with chi. Uh, an acupuncturist is working the meridians or a Reiki practitioner, you know, is working with the, the, um, the chakras. Those would be uh, in, in one interpretation, that would be the work with the uh, Sambhogakaya. Mm -hmm. And then the some Tibetan practitioners also said that is still the um, Nirmanakaya, you know, because the, the Tibetan understanding of reality is uh, that much uh, more refined. They would say, you know, the, su the subtle body, the chakras, those are still on, on the tangible side. You know, there's something else within Tibetan medicine known as the extremely subtle body. You know, these uh, white drops and red drops that um, come into our field at the time of conception and uh, finally join together at the time of death. Hmm. So that's uh, an extra, very, very subtle body. But in our, our kind of common experience, you know, that, that um, in the, the Tibetan medicine, you know, this uh, subtle body, um, the, the sort of basic subtle body is known as wind horse. Mm. And that carries a connotation, you know, of power. You know, it's uh, uh, analogous in a way to uh, Kundalini. Yeah. That, that we can tap into this life force and we can support its flow through certain spiritual practices, uh, embodied practices, and healing work. 
and the, the, um, actually the, the body of medicine known as Ayurveda was originally practiced by Buddhist monks. Uh, so within Ayurveda, there is a lot of, um, you know, a, a beautiful body of knowledge in, in, of how to turn, you know, poisons into medicine. So the great sage uh, Nagarjuna, uh, who evolved some of our understanding of emptiness, um, he also was an Ayurvedic practitioner, you know, who did this work of uh, transforming poison into medicine. Um, and his treatises are still um, recognized, and they're still part of the Ayurvedic wisdom tradition. You know, so he carried those healing skills, as well as the Buddhist uh, practices um, with him, you know, when he traveled um, around. So that, that raises for me the question, uh, the general question of, of um, how Buddhist practitioners and Buddhist healers, if you consider them so, uh, uh, at least theoretically, or you can posit them as two groups, what, yeah. over, how much overlap would you say um, well, uh, exists in, in the Tibetan tradition versus, say, the Korean tradition? Well, there's quite a lot of overlap in the in the Tibetan tradition. And we see that because um, within Tibetan medicine, in order to become uh, yeah, a licensed Tibetan doctor, you know, a doctor of tr traditional Tibetan medicine, one has to engage the medicine Buddha practices mm -hmm. in which one envisions oneself as the medicine Buddha. And um, yeah, that that means that every time that one is, is working with a client, um, one is tapping into this wisdom that is uh, beyond the self, you know, that exists on an archetypal level. And that's the place um, from which to minister, you know, from one's own deepest place of wholeness, you know, and then seeing the Buddha within them as well. Okay. Uh, from uh, within a Korean tradition, uh, there absolutely are, yeah, um, monks who are uh, acupuncturists, you know, who are carrying the Korean traditional medicine. And in Korea, also, there is the medicine Buddha. You know, the word for medicine Buddha in Korea is yakse yore bul. It, it literally means medicine Buddha. So that, that medicine Buddha lineage is broadly Mahayana. It's not exclusively Tibetan. Mm-hmm. Um, but within um, traditional Korean medicine or uh, Chinese medicine, there are many practitioners who um, are not are not necessarily accessing from that place. It's it's not as as um, it's not as institutionalized as it is in Tibetan medicine, you know. But it is um, available, you know, within that uh, uh, tradition of healing. Thank you. So uh, a little earlier in the conversation, you you touched on this um, notion of narrative medicine, and you talked a little bit about ritual. So one of the major focuses in your book is the role of ritual. And one of the terms you use to describe ritual is embodied narrative, which I thought yeah. was kind of an interesting one. 
I'm interested, how, you know, if you could maybe turn the conversation to how ritual figures in the Buddhist traditional healing practices and, um, you know, how you see or how you came to kind of understand what the essential elements of uh, rituals were for the for the healing process. Mm, those are really good questions. And that, that goes pretty deep. So um you know one one of the i think um interesting uh tidbits that i i researched was that discovering that um you know the word for ritual in um tibetan language simply means to um you know this way to accomplish a goal you know so what's the what's what's the skillful means you know, and, and so that one has a skillful means that is established and um, <clears throat> that is connecting with this deeper body of meaning that is ancient and archetypal, you know, but also uh, speaking to where the client lives. And so when I, I um, worked with the data, you know, all of, all of these interviews that I did, I looked for... Um, you know, the places where the, uh, I had data, rich data in, in terms of what was the actual language um, that the, these lamas and that these healers were using. You know, what, what stood out, what was uh, repeated, you know, in, in these indivi individual interviews, you know, what were the common threads? That's the qualitative interview uh, process. Mm -hmm. And so within that, uh, this narrative practice of research, um, I did identify these uh, healing practices across cultures. Uh, I, or I, let me say, yeah, not to be overly ambitious, you know, I'm building really on the work done by Joan Costiono, um, who um, did her research as part of the spiritual transformation uh, scientific research program that was conducted by the Metanexus Institute and the, which sought to understand the nature of the conditions that support spiritual transformation. So that was a huge uh, research program supported by the John Templeton Foundation. So she uh, identified three um, universal elements. The first one was the relational empathy, that, that connection between the healer and the client, which is to say that relationship heals. And that the relationship between the healer and the client is, is helping, again, to tap into these resources that might have got blocked so that, that the, the client themselves can see their own wholeness. And the second piece was the restoration of relationship so that then this uh, restoration of wholeness within the healer um, uh, recipient uh, dyad can transfer over into all of their relationships. Hopefully all of their relationships then become healing relationships. And the third um, element that Joan identified was uh, transformation. So uh, on a basic level, at least the healer needs to, to uh, transform. There's that saying that we can't um, solve the problem on the level that it was created. You know, so that if we're in a, a more a static place, you know, um, a more kind of reified place where we're holding on to 
um, the old story. You know, that actually impedes the flow of energy and information. And a good healer will often take people into a place that is um, an altered state of consciousness. You know, certainly when one receives acupuncture or Reiki, it's, it's easy to notice, you know, how there's a shift in our attention, you know, how we move into a, a more relaxed and receptive place. So that's part of um, the healing modality. And then also in speaking to these Buddhist healers, I, I would put forth that there's some other qualities as well uh, that are necessary. Uh, first of all, intention, uh, setting intention. And then uh, beyond the intention, uh, creating space, mm-hmm. creating space within, which then makes it possible for us to create um, a good uh, therapeutic container for uh, the client. So before we go, let, let, let's uh, talk about those two for a moment, because I know there's a, quite a list of uh, items here. Uh, intention is an interesting one to me, uh, yeah. partly because I've done quite a bit of study on the, uh, the what I'd call the frontier science level of intention and some of the work that happens at places like the Institute of Noetic Sciences that show uh, statistically significant effects in double-blind experiments resulting from the application of intention from a a healer or a shaman or a meditator on some target system, whether it's uh, food or uh, something else. Um, But you had a story that I thought was interesting in the book where one of your informants described having learned about the use of uh, rotating of needles in acupuncture so that you rotate it in one way and you are uh, discharging a built up chi and you rotate it another way and you're sort of tonifying or bringing in chi or fortifying. And then she was at a uh, clinical setting and saw some senior practitioners who were working. They seemed to be doing just the opposite of what she had imagined. And she asked him about that. And the response was that, you know, if you understand this principle, you understand everything about the healing. And that's that it's the intention that the healer is providing. It doesn't really matter which way you're uh, turning the needle. It's the intention. Yes. And, and and that almost, you know, that stopped me right there because it's almost like, uh, do I need to keep reading? I mean, it's like, <laughs> the, <laughs> like the intention. So if, if, if the intention is that transformative, that seems like a central axis around the healing process. So I, I just want yeah. you to kind of speak to that for a moment because it seemed uh, it's a it's a galvanizing concept in a lot of different dimensions for me. Well, it is. And actually, Tina Amarek from IONS was part of um, my committee as I was originally wow. generating the research. I'm very aware of the good work that they're doing there. And that's an interesting point, which is in Western medicine, Consciousness and intention are not yet recognized as causal factors. And, and yet there is this body of research that's emerging that shows consciousness and intention are causal factors. You know, so ultimately, if we're in, empiricist, we have to follow the evidence where the evidence goes. This is, this is really interesting because earlier today, in fact, we were, we were having a, con- Stuart and I were having a conversation with a uh, uh, Native American, California Native uh, Pomo, a friend, dear, dear friend of ours. And she was talking about um, 
you know, she, she's throughout her life been somewhat remote from uh, Western medicine, medical interventions. She's a healer in her own because she's a healer in her in her own tradition. But she she went ahead and decided to get the uh, COVID nineteen vaccine, and and she related a, a, a story. And I can't remember if it was either the first or second shot. It was the second she, shot. It was the second very shot recently, right? So she she um, was in line to get the shot, and then um, when she came to the person who was going to inject the shot. She um, said, I'd, I'd like to, um, you know, uh, uh, do Reiki on your hand, on the place on my body where... Uh, where on, the, on the medicine. On the medicine, on, on the place on my body where it's going to be injected and stuff like that. And, and, and it really stopped <laughs> this woman, who, I guess, who was doing the... Uh, who, who was tasked with doing the injection. But then... Um, she, you know that it all happened. It's it slowed the process down a little bit for the next person, but when that next person in line came through after her vaccination, she asked uh, our friend why there had been this delay and what yes, was what happening because she, she could see that there was something happening, right? So, um, so this uh, this uh, next woman in line said to our, our friend, "Well, well, you could do that to me." And, and, and I was, uh, and so I'm struck by this discussion of intention. You know, here's our, here's our uh, uh, native Californian friend who's a healer who, who um, understands the importance of, of intention, brought it, was willing to bring it into, uh, uh, felt empowered to bring it into a Western context like this. And it was immediately intuitively appreciated by a random person also yeah. in this, in this uh, arena. So, um, so I, I bring this up and, and just ask if you have any, any uh, comments about that, because I think people are, you know, I think people, people wonder how, how open and receptive people are to this sort of approach. What, what's your experience and uh, what came out of your research along these lines? Well, I would say that uh, my residency at UCSF has provided me with some good uh, clinical experiences of my own to support this, which is, you know, of course, you know, there are interventions that Western medicine is capable of that we're all going to benefit from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, the vaccine is a, a good ex- uh, example of that. And at the same time, if we're able to um hybrid and bring in these uh, traditional practices utilizing consciousness and energy um that effect of the western medicine is going to be uh, so much stronger and we see this uh, especially with regard to the chronic illnesses that uh, western medicine has had a harder time in working with you know or things like ptsd that have been intractable uh, to western psychology that there's a growing recognition that Western medicine has to think outside its own box. You know, just as physics had to break free from its own paradigms and move from Newtonian physics to quantum physics, in the same way the biological sciences and and the human sciences also need to break free. And that we have the tools. And people like Peter Levine and his somatic experiencing are actually 
utilizing many of these traditional practices within um, uh, Western medical healthcare settings in a way that is being recognized as truly innovative. Well, let me let me then re refocus on the question that Stuart had started with just a moment ago about ritual. So, how does ritual tie into this development that you're uh, advocating? Um, well, there are there are many levels. You know, one of which is recognizing the need for. Um, uh, the need to access the, the client's own embodied experience. You know, that's by, by helping them to access that, uh, the energy moves from the, the um, you know, the, the mind, you know, the cognitive system, which might've got stuck in a little bit of a loop, you know, old story, you know, it, it increases the information um, coming up from the body, okay. you know, so uh, dance and chanting, and um, you know, other other traditional practices that are using fragrance and um, color and sound, you know, as it, all of these actually help us to uh, re-regulate. So in, within Peter Levine's work, um, he has people um, make contact with their own body at the heart and the belly or even giving themselves a hug from the, the putting the right hand on the left shoulder, the left hand underneath uh, the right shoulder. And this, this creates a greater, uh, a stronger feedback loop from the body to the mind, uh, conveying a sense of safety. And uh, within that, he has the participants make the low sound, uh, like the sound vu. Uh, and what happens with that sound as it vibrates through the lower belly is it's it's um, overriding whatever that story of anxiety or stuckness is that's been has been carried uh, by um, the mind. That well, that, that you so you remind me of a particular. Um, element of your book um, that, that, uh, that really resonated for me, which was to bring the mind into the heart. Yes. And so maybe you could, for our listeners, elaborate a bit on that. Well, um, within um, these interviews, Heidi Harding is, is one acupuncturist who, who described to me how in Chinese medicine, uh, the Shen, you know, the spirit you know, should naturally be residing within the heart. But it gets startled easily, you know, and like birds. And so if the mind and spirit are not within the heart, we might be agitated, um, anxious, or even disassociated from ourselves. And, um, and disassociated from our environments as well. And disassociated from our environments as well. You know, but there are ways in which, you know, through that, the practices of acupuncture and through her own uh, spiritual practices, um, she was able to bring that back. And when she did, her client knew right away um, that she was feeling like herself for the first time in a long time. Hmm. So the, the bringing the mind into the heart uh, 
figures partly under the uh, larger umbrella of creating space, which you just described as a goal of ritual. Uh, and you mentioned intention and creating space among two of seven uh, goals that you outline. And this notion of creating space was very interesting for me in relationship to our own uh, Taiyu meditation practice, because our teacher, um, Robert Innes, had introduced a series of practices uh, he called co-meditation, which you establish a meditative context with another person. But part of that training and part of the elaboration of those exercises was really developing the ability to be fully present with full attention to another person while they're talking about something that's going on for them without reacting internally or yeah. externally to what they're saying. So you're, so it, you truly, truly are creating a space of attention, which is active and vibrant, but non-reactive. Yes. And, and so it was interesting just because of my experience, having done that for many years and what happens in that space when someone feels that they can speak into it, you know, it's, it's almost as though uh, you're connecting a circuit to ground where this built up charge that represents the disharmonization of uh, some system in a, in a individual is able to be pulled out and go into this, this ground or this, uh, this open space. Uh, it feels like there's a flow that's created and, it's transformative both as a both doing it as the holding of the space, but also speaking into that space. And so I have that vivid personal experience. And so you, you speak of that uh, very much in the same context that for the, for the informants that you talk to creating space was important because it becomes the container for the healing to take place. Yes. <clears throat> if that does become the container for the healing to take place. And in my work as a chaplain, actually what we call that is ministry of presence. But to whatever degree that we have been able to create space inside, you know, we're then able to extend it to others through that kind of uh, deep listening that, ha you know, has no judgment, um, but is simply offering to the other person, that gift of being seen and, and heard and, and witnessed. And there was, it's a kind of making contact and on a very deep level. And uh, very often, um, just that um, making space, that's already the healing modality. Uh, Zen master uh, Bernie Glassman, uh, in his engaged work in, in the communities, used to call that bearing witness. That, we, that he would go out to these places where he, um, spiritual healing was needed, whether it was working with homeless on the streets or even going to uh, concentration camps like Auschwitz and, and doing ritual yeah. there. And so that bearing witness, he said, that's the thing. You know, out of that bearing witness, sometimes there's an action that will need to be taken, but sometimes bearing witness is the action. Well, that... that um creates in me the, the question, um, I, I, li I like that phrase, bearing witness, because it's, it so strongly resembles um, my own fundamental self-observation, fourth-way practice, um, internally and externally, bearing witness. But um, 
what's the role, what role would you point to with regard to ritual um, in terms of bearing witness both as as a as a Buddhist practitioner within a Sangha, mm. a community, and as a Buddhist healer engaging with um, a person who has requested healing? Well, uh, that first thing is um, creating the sacred space and the, the therapeutic container within two with, uh, between two people. Mm-hmm. And then a good ritual is going to engage um, within that space in a way that's meaningful to the other person, you know, uh, using their symbolic language. Um, mm-hmm. you know, within um, uh, uh, like a Tibetan practice, uh, the ritual is going to vary according to the needs of that client. And so the, the way, for instance, um, that I would work with a client um, using what was originally a, a kind of deity yoga um, adapted by Lama John McCransky uh, for a secular context or an interfaith context. Instead of envisioning, um, you know, Vajra Yogini or um, the Medicine Buddha, one would invite that client to envision all of those people who have carried a wish of love for them since the beginning of their lives, their parents, their grandparents, their friends, you know, their partners, their children, you know, even like their dogs or their cats, if that's where the love has been coming from, as well as those teachers like His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, that carry a wish of well-being for everyone. So allowing them to envision that in the in the in the heart and the mind and until that's a felt presence and and then envisioning all of that love like a golden light streaming down into their heart opening the heart awakening it nourishing it and that light then um moving through the entire body and nourishing the bone marrow you know the internal organs shimmering through every pore of the skin renewing the blood. That is um, a way in which these uh, traditional um, practices can be harnessed in our everyday settings so that they are absolutely tailored to the client's own meaning making. So I assume that that you would have no objection to including, say, visualization of, for a Christian, the Virgin Mary or Jesus or something, or for a, a Jew, Moses, I guess, or or, yeah. or or a rabbi. Yeah, well, sometimes what I've done with people um, who are from a Judeo-Christian um, uh, persuasion is to work with the imagery, for instance, in Psalm 23. Hmm. So that the, the, the Psalm 23 is that very familiar one, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know, he leads me b- b- beside um, the still waters, he refreshes my soul. Right. And so envisioning themselves in that landscape of um, being refreshed in the green pastures and the hmm. still waters. And hmm. from that place, then envisioning uh, the shepherd, you know, or that, that source of light, um, mm-hmm. offering them you know, that, uh, the anointing, you know, offering them some image that is making contact in a way that's intimate and resonant with their own uh, beliefs. Well, I'm sorry, go ahead, finish. 
Yeah, and and so within that, then uh, yes, you know that creates a good conductive environment um, for the visualization of Jesus or their loved ones or um, whatever that image is is going to be. That's the most healing for them. Got it. So so what I'm what I'm hearing you say is that is that ritual has to have. Uh, personal resonance, otherwise it's not going to be helpful. And um, perhaps a, a a common understanding of ritual why it why it has why secular um, folks in the West have dismissed the importance of ritual. I suppose um, um, is that uh, because they've rejected the um, stories around the rituals um, that they were that they might have been exposed to in youth, or see enacted around them, um, is because they don't have a, a personal resonance. But for those people who do, then that's a perfectly valid uh, pathway and way to use yeah. ritual. Yes, and um, even for people who, um, let's say, are spiritual but not religious or who are agnostic, you know, they, they still have um, a kind of meaning making um, th- through some kind of relationship that's brought them love, uh, that's brought them joy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes people's meaning making is embedded in their story. Mm-hmm. And, and so that the, the way that we're going to connect is, is by my bearing witness to their uh, life review. Mm-hmm. And then we see what are the options for ritual that are arising naturally out of that. Oh, but cool. good ritual definitely has to be uh, using the client's map. So, so this raises another question for me about another of the goals of ritual, and that's you refer to that as the evoking sacred power. Yeah. And and I guess I, you know, some of the uh, Tibetan tradition that you mentioned there are range from Vajrasattva to Chode to uh, uh, Bone Soul Retrieval, which sounds very traditionally shamanistic. Yeah. And yet in this conversation that we're having, uh, there's a challenge of with a client, uh, uh, to be effective, you need to optimize meaning making. And yeah. so so I guess the, the question I'm trying to get at is, um, uh, is the sacred power that's evoked dependent on the meaning making of the client. So in other words, uh, uh, in order to tap into uh, the meta sacred, you need to find that which is meaningful to the client. Or is there something beyond the meaning making that is being tapped into that uh, is present regardless of whether the patient is relating to it or not? Well, yes. I mean, isn't that a beautiful question? Um, in my experience, my own capacity to tap into, um, you know, the, these archetypal bodies of wisdom is what makes it possible for me to facilitate. Um, and at the same time, you know, in order for this to be most skillful for the client, it's going to need to be translated into their own language. So for the, sometimes I'll work with the, the bare elements. For instance, in Shad ritual, a really important point is being able to 
um, lift up that emotional imprint of fear. You know, in order to transcend the fear, we have to be able to be with the fear. So I might invite them. I might say, envision this ball. And there's four different layers of the ball that we're going to pull off one by one. Uh, the first layer of the ball is anxiety. You know, so what does the anxiety look like for you? You know, can you describe that to me? Um, what color is it? What texture is it? You know, is there, is there a, an image that comes up with that? So just now imagine what it might be like to turn that anxiety over to the universe. And, and, and from there, you know, we will then um, explore the um, a layer of control. You know, in what ways do we need to have control of the situation where we can't or we don't? So there, there you're sort of uh, uh, neutralizing the imagery uh, uh, in a way that's relatable by, say, a Western mind. I'm, yeah. I'm interested, you know, it's, it reminds me of Zoltrim uh, 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 Alione's uh, uh, work with uh, Chode, and, and she wrote a book called Feeding Your Demons. You probably have run across Yes. That. We, yes. had her, we had her on the show many years ago, and uh, uh, so we're familiar with that work. And there, there was a, the Chode visualizations were quite dramatic, but they were yes. accessible for someone, you know, but it really depended on what their imagination came up with. So, yeah, I love, I, yes, I love her work, and I've used that as well um, with clients because it's, it's a very powerful um, and skillful translation that she's done for the Western mind. So, so, so what I'm hearing you say about all this is, is that um, in terms of Stuart's question about, um, in this case, your, your, in your chaplaincy work, um, you can draw on that, which is that, which you recognize as is sacred and, um, and, um, beyond the ordinary yeah. um, realm and, and, and then skillfully translate based on your uh, engagement with it, conversations with a uh, partner who needs healing mm -hmm. um, um, in some way. And you don't, and you don't come to it with a predetermined, view is, is, is what I'm hearing you say, is that, it, the, is that this translation emerges as you understand how to evoke in that person some, some sense of the sacred, even though it might not be labeled as such. Is that, is that right? Absolutely. Yes. There are certainly people whom I work with who are um, not of a spiritual persuasion in a way that we would commonly understand it. And yet, mm -hmm. of course, they have a meaning making. And uh, yes, I go in, uh, there's a friend of mine um, who said that teaching Zen is like improvisational theater. Hmm. You know, it's a, the, 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 the play of yes and, you know, how can you build on what the client is presenting and to create something um, that is spontaneous and uh, transforming. So mm -hmm. sometime I've gone in and visited with uh, clients and I've just used what's at hand. Maybe what's at hand is a bottle of hand lotion. Mm -hmm. 
you know, and a rosary. Yeah. And so I'll use those uh, to do um, what uh, in uh, family constellations is called constellation work. Yeah. You know, here's our ritual. You know, here's, here's the, the work that needs to be healed. Here's a, a relationship piece um, that we need to dialogue with. You know, here's the image of the inner parents. Here's the image of the inner child. And here, you know, in, in this, at this particular moment, what I, I have at hand is a rosary and a bottle of hand lotion. And those are going to uh, sub in because that's what we have. And actually that has helped people um, to make a big shift in a short time with regard to some pieces of uh, relationship that had uh, pre previously been unhealed. So it's sort of a modern day soul retrieval. Yeah, 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 not unlike that, it's true. So I, I, I gotta say, I just, I'll just inject really quickly that um, uh, the, the idea of soul retrieval in a Buddhist context is itself a little dissonant. Yeah. <laughs> because, <laughs> because, because there's, there's no intrinsic soul. <laughs> yeah, right. that is an issue. <laughs> so, so that just was arising for me with the book, but, um, but I understand that, um, that it's arising out of this more shamanic uh, realm, if you will, that's and, present and in Tibetan uh, religion. And, and there are um, there are Tibetan Buddhist shaman who do soul retrieval, and their their um, kind of metaphysical understanding of that is that there is a part of our um, the energy of ourself, you know, that um, is uh, physically located, and there is an element of ourself that is um, you know more uh, ethereal, if you will. Yeah, and there are ways again in, in which the um, the heart and the mind are perhaps never, never, never intrinsically separate. You know, but certainly the mind and the spirit can be a little bit harder to access because of what we've just been through. Mm -hmm. And so, it, instead of saying retrieving it from some place where it's completely gone out, we can say it's making it more accessible. That connection. Yeah. And just because there's no uh, inherently self-existing soul doesn't mean there's a uh, a soul that's ever changing that still can be. Well, I, of course, that's the that's the uh, uh, argument that's made, and yeah. I get it. One of the uh, areas that you brought in in the book that was interesting to me because of a background in Western magical practice is the five elements, and. Mm. And again, it comes up partly because uh, it's a it's a modality that shows up in this healing tradition. And I think you included a treatise from Lama Jinpa in the book on, yes. on, on, on the five elements. But it was interesting to see that the elements show up in a lot of different locations in Western traditions and Eastern traditions and uh, uh, shamanic traditions. Um, and that there's an accorded a, a sense of reality to the elements and it's a very different healing intuition than what we get in let's say uh uh neuropsychology i'm wondering yeah. if you could just speak a little bit of what you know why you brought that in and what that how you understand the uh centrality of elemental work to the uh larger program of buddhist healing well i i think well, one one key thing about the elements is the recognition that we are not separate from nature. You know, we are nature, and when we when we recognize that, you know, and access that, um, 
you know, we, we find the full vitality of our, our animal body, you know, our nature body. I, and there is, by the way, a great amount of interplay between the, that Western um, historical understanding of the five elements and the Buddhist understanding. A great book on that is Buddhist Magic, which came out this year, which looks at the correlations uh, and uh, traces them uh, through the Silk Road, you know, as part of that flow of energy and information that was happening historically. Um, as I said, I feel like we're going to get more information about that as the scholarship continues to develop. You know, but our body comes from the elements and um, we have uh, an interplay between ourselves and the environment. You know, this is another one of the um, implications of uh, Patika Samupada. You know, that the, the mind and the body rest upon each other like two sheaves of wheat resting upon each other. You know, and then also the body and the natural world are independent. You know, the self and nature are independent, interdependent. And so within this um, paradigm that the five elements give us are another, it's another view, another paradigm uh, to fine-tune our understanding of how that interplay takes place. It's, it's, it, it's, a, it, it's a particular um, map, if you will, of healing that, um, that goes back a very long way and, and I think utilizes, uh, it taps into something archetypally that's very powerful. It certainly taps into the notion of balance and that uh, it's a way of articulating how we may be out of balance mentally, emotionally, or physically in terms of uh, the presence or absence of particular elemental forces. It also seems to me to be largely concerned with the subtle body uh, side of things, that, uh, that yeah. it's, a, it's a way of understanding the, uh, the patterning of energies as opposed to a uh, physical thing, which is to say, you know, uh, uh, that there's not a there's not a physical fire element as much as uh, there's a way in which physical objects uh, pattern together that is fiery. Yes, and I would also really access um, the Jungian work in this regard. That um, what what became known as the MBTI um, or Myers Briggs. You know, that was founded upon uh, Carl Jung's personality theory, which, which in turn was patterned largely upon Western elemental theory. Mm. You know, but in um, uh, Buddhist, five, there's five elements, whereas in the, in the West, there's four elements uh, commonly. Yeah, it, it's kind of, I mean, there's the word quintessence in the um, uh, English language, which is the fifth element, which so the... the you know, and in, in magical literature today, uh, the fifth element is Akasha, which is understood to be, it, it functions very much like space, but it's understood to be the uh, sort of the, out, that, the field out of which the other elements uh, condense. That's, that's very um, uh, in alignment with uh, Buddhist five elemental theory as well. Yeah. That and the it, space is the element that underlies all the other elements. And as you say, it's not clear uh, exactly what the the cross fertilization of these ideas were, but it seems to be a common paradigm that shows up. But 
uh, since you know we're getting not immediately but close to the end of the time, I wanted to leave a little space because you have a section in the book uh, that you talk about the new neuroscience, mm. and and it's interest. It was interesting. It surprised me a little bit uh, <laughs> uh, uh, to find it in the book, but it also was uh, um, there were some interesting elements that you brought in that um, uh, did echo back to all of the practices and principles that you were talking about in the Buddhist corpus. The two that I wanted you to speak to were uh, this notion of horizontal integration and this mm -hmm. notion of, of vertical integration. Yes. Um, so uh, Dan Siegel is a, a, a great psychologist who's done much of the pioneering work um, in, in lifting up the field of interpersonal neuroscience. And part of his understanding is that in order for a person to be healthy, psychologically healthy, and also physically healthy, there needs to be, first of all, the vertical integration, um, making contact with the, the limbic system and its body-based information, together with the prefrontal cortex. You know, if we have too little information, then our way of, of um, responding to the world becomes rigid. You know, we're not able to tap into the vitality of being alive. We're not able to um, feel and respond to um, what is going on with another person in a way that feels genuine um, because we're shut out from our own experience ourselves. You know, on the other hand, if there's too much information coming up from the limbic system uh, without uh, integration, then the experience is of chaos you know, where we uh, speak to someone and it feels like it's all over the place with a lot of um, um, emotion that just hasn't been integrated. But if we're able then to create uh, this experience of vertical integration, again, uh, dance, uh, music, uh, rhythm, yoga, meditation, and qigong, these are some of the pathways for vertical integration. So when the vertical integration happens, we have enough information and of energy coming up so our lives have vitality, but not so much so that they become chaotic. And the, and the uh, horizontal integration is between the, the left and the right brain. You know, so being able to enjoy the, the uh, gifts of the right brain of imagination and intuition and creativity um, and connection, and uh, while uh, being able to hold that with a left brain um, capacity for structure and and um, insight and intellect, you know, th that um, synthesis of right brain and left brain is something that we see through, uh, for instance, poetry or art. You know, art is tapping into something that can't be completely uh, conceptualized. You know, very often we know, we absolutely know when we see good art, but it, we can't really put that into words. So that's that's where we see the synthesis of the right brain and the left brain. Well, part of what was uh, interesting in reading that for me is that there is, um, you know, in our the tradition that we worked in, the 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 Gurdjieff fourth way tradition, there's the notion of the three brains very clearly. And that, that, that was all codified long, long before we had a really strong articulation of this in medical science. But the mm. part of the work 
part of the preparatory work is uh, the alignment or the integration of, of the, the harmonization, basically, of these three centers. And so the, the language that you use there uh, was a sort of a modern scientific way of describing a very much the same thing and that the, the result of harmonization is a sense of vitality and integration as a being in a body. Mm. And this horizontal is in itself interesting as well because it sort of speaks to a different kind of harmonization of uh, our ability to see holes and to participate in holes and connectivity and to see parts and to understand structure and that both are necessary but in many ways part of the challenge with a, a western mind is that we tend to have de-emphasized the ability to see holes and we've overemphasized the ability to see parts and yeah and, and that's one of the challenges that i i see actually with the, the the western scientific paradigm when applied to healing uh especially and your book is really a good reflection of that because you are really many of the rituals and the creating of space and the elements that we've talked about is very right brain to use that kind of language it's a it's a a vision of wholeness Whereas Western science, uh, you know, Western medicine until very recently seems to be very fixated on uh, a very materialistic view of uh, illness. Yes, it's actually true. But to whatever degree we're able to do that integrative work within ourselves, we're also um, increasing the uh, potential for us um, to step into that as a species. You know, whatever work we do on ourselves is helping to anchor that. Uh, for the world, because there's ultimately no separation. You know, when we work on ourselves, we work on the whole. When we work on the whole, we work on ourselves. Um, within that, you know, as as we um, find these pathways of integration, there's going to be greater opportunities for healing. Um, you know, some of the kind of chronic maladies or or intractable. Um, psychological things like PTSD. And uh, I see that through, in particular, the work of MAPS, uh, which has been pioneering uh, work using the psychedelics for uh, different um, situations. For instance, there's research that's going on right now in the use of psilocybin for people who are in end-stage cancer. So that connection with something that's beyond themselves is, you know, um, biologically mediated, and yet it's, it's, it's connecting with um, something which we would call the numinous. And when people make contact with that, much of their kind of fear drops away and, and things come into a new perspective. Right. Um, well, we're getting close to the end here, and I want to, there's one question I've in, in one sense asked already, but, but I'll, I'll just preface the question as I'll formulate it anew in, in a moment uh, with my observation that when I was, you know, 40 plus years ago, uh, a new spiritual practitioner here in uh, the West, um, there was not a recognition of any connection in particular to healing with spiritual mm -hmm. practice and and your book is a reflection it seems to me 
of, of the way in which healing has come to the fore in many uh, uh, considerations of spiritual practice. Yeah. So, so, um, so I was just looking at the, uh, at the title again, Field of Blessings, Ritual and Consciousness in the Work of Buddhist Healers. What would it mean to you to change one word in that title? Field of Blessings, Ritual and Consciousness in the Work of Buddhist Practitioners. Yes. Yes, ultimately, you know, that's, I, I believe that it, we're all on, on a healing journey towards greater wholeness. And we all experience um, healing crises, which can serve as an initiation, you know, through which we learn how to use that um, experience and to bring others into a state of greater well-being. So, 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 in, so in a sense, um, your book is really about one particular articulation of Sangha, of a Buddhist community or of community. Yeah. Yes. Yes, it is. And, and from the beginning, it's been that way. That's why the Buddha was referred to as the great physician. Yes, right. Yeah, I was just thinking of that, well, you of, know, of, it, of the stories he would tell in the, in, in the uh, Pali Canon. Yes. One thing that occurs to me in, in the question and the response here is how often with healing, uh, we think of it as like someone really has a problem, they need help. But healing also means uh, uh, sustaining health. And you don't necessarily, I mean, that it's just exactly sustaining the wholeness. Yeah, sustaining wholeness and the rituals uh, uh, and consciousness in, in practice is a means for maintaining the wholeness so that we ne don't necessarily get to the point that we have to uh, 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 see a practitioner for a, a more major intervention because these tools that you describe are are able to be applied for ourselves with ourselves and with our our sangha and our community on an ongoing basis and yes and they are i would say they are applied on an ongoing basis consciously or unconsciously you know just as nature is is not in a static state but you know it's always evolving you know the leaves are always a different shade of green in that way we and the systems, the, the systems that we're a part of are ever evolving. And to whatever degree that we bring ourselves into a greater wholeness, um, that's already inducing a wholeness within our communities. That's the field of blessings. Thank you. Yes. Well, um, as we're drawing to a close here, I'm, I'm going to um, inquire about your continuing work. Do you have a new book project or some other um, engagement that you're looking forward to in the future beyond what you've already discussed today? Well, I'm, I'm looking towards uh, teaching this work um, both at East West Bookstore uh, this week on Thursday um, at Omega Institute uh, this summer and, um, and in an ongoing way through my spiritual community, uh, my Sangha. And there's information uh, about all of those projects on my website, which is Mountain Path, uh, M-O-U-N-T-A-I-N-P-A-T-H dot O-R-G. You know, so that's one way of staying connected. And I'm also working with a dear friend who is a gifted osteopath and energy worker, uh, Stephen Weiss, on a book uh, related to his 
um, his um, healing modality, which he refers to as a way of healing the mysteries of pain and trauma. So that, that book is being birthed. That's the next one in the birth canal. I'll look forward to speaking with you at some point in the future with that. <laughs> How did you connect with this gentleman? Just out of curiosity. Out of, it, was, it was through the amazing Omega Institute that um, one summer as I was coming onto campus for the first time, he was playing his flute, you know, outside of the, the workshop space that he'd been given. And um, I struck up a conversation and we've been good friends since. Hmm. So, um, yeah, it's a very uh, right brain, left brain endeavor. And sometimes I play actually the left brain and, and provide the structure uh, so that he can rest upon his uh, flow of creativity. And sometimes we have a, a, a great conversation, you know, about what are the, what in the end makes a difference. So that's that's that that is in proposal form and it, and it should be coming into the world next. But oh. there's there's a. There's a few other healing projects and writing projects, so I'll be sure to keep you posted. Well, we appreciate that, and we appreciate the uh, conversation today. Uh, I very much enjoyed reading Field of Blessings. I think it's very interesting and useful con contribution to the conversation, particularly the conversation today about Western healing uh, as it's becoming more influenced by uh, the Eastern traditions, because I think there's a a lot of vitality there right now and it uh feels like you're in the forefront of that conversation maybe so, so. I'm, I'm very i'm honored by that and um you know may we fully actualize that you know i hope this book helps many people okay all right well thank you so thank you so much young padma it's been uh, wonderful again to, yes. to speak with you and uh best uh, wishes with uh Field of Blessings Project and all the other work that you're doing. Thank you. The pleasure is mine. So much gratitude for the work that you're doing. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with Jihang Padma, author of Field of Blessings, Ritual and Consciousness, and the Work of Buddhist Healers. Jihang Padma is currently a CPE chaplain resident at the University of San Francisco Medical Center and combines an academic and professional career with her role as a Zen teacher. Jihang has done intensive Zen training and teaching in Asia and North America for 20 years, 15 of these as an ordained nun. She is also the author of Living the Season, Zen Practice for Transformative Times. Next week on The Mystical Positivist, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Trevor Stewart, practitioner and writer in the Fourth Way tradition. Trevor has experience in both the Zen Buddhist monastic and Gurdjieff work, buy a farm and try to fix it up traditions. A longtime Beelzebub's Tales practitioner, he leads private online study groups. He presents regularly at the annual International All and Everything Conference, has written for Parabola magazine, and is a preferred guest on The Mystical Positivist podcast. In daily life, he runs a design and build firm in Portland, Oregon. Join us for that show on Saturday, May 1st at 4 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com. Join us again next Saturday.